Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're going to be fearless, focused, calm, decisive, uh, you know, whatever those, whatever those elements are, and make sure that everybody on board that gets onboarded understands, okay, when, when you step into this space with this athlete, this is who we are. Right? So. Hey guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA A licensed football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name's Coach Yas, and today I've got a very special guest with me. I've got PGA 2019 Golf Coach of the Year, Kevin Kirk. Thanks, man. I really appreciate you uh, inviting me on, and uh, it's uh, it's just an honor to be with you. So, thank you so much for the invite. Thank you. The pleasure is going to be all mine, I'm sure. Um, Kev, just um, before we get started, obviously I touched on there that you know your PGA Golf Coach of the Year last year. Um, for those that aren't familiar, and you know that if that doesn't give enough of a picture of what you do exactly, you mind talking a little about who you are and what you do, and uh, I guess in brief how you got to where you got to right now. Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm actually a PGA kind of a master professional. So I've been uh, coaching golf for the, about the last 30 years, I would say, pretty consistently. And uh, uh, my title here at the, the place I work is called I'm the Director of Instruction at the Woodlands Country Club. And so I oversee the development of the programming and coach education. And, and uh, then I 
also spend quite a bit of time with kind of our high performance group. And, and uh, so that golf was up most of my time. Um, I've just, uh, I've came into golf, into this golf uh, instruction space as a failed player. I, I was a really an accomplished amateur and, and you know, was all American in college and, and played for professionally for six years after I got out of school. Uh, you know, I just tapped out. I just, I just couldn't get myself organized to, to be able to kind of play well enough to, you know, in my mind, justify continuing to play. So I stopped after about six years and uh, um, took a year off just to try to decide what, uh, what direction I wanted to kind of go with my life. And uh, after a year of contemplation and uh, decided that was probably the coaching pathway was something that I could, I could move into. So I, I moved into that and uh, I've been, been, you know, I've been doing that for the last 30 years and just, it's, it's just been a, just a joy for me. So. Excellent. <clears throat> curious to know, obviously, you moved into that coaching space, and you know, um, so like yourself, I'm not from the coaching world, albeit a different sport. Um, you know, and as we go through the, I guess, the journey as coaches, we all start to develop our own ideas, our own ways of working, and our philosophies, and you know, things that we are kind of fans of, and things we kind of steer away from. So, just a little bit more about yourself and your your philosophy. You know, how, how would you describe that? I would consider myself, you know, currently a kind of a, a developmental coach. I, I believe in, you know, <clears throat> pursuing that long-term athlete development principles. Um, movement-based coach. I love to kind of watch movement and high-quality movement. So I, that that when I, as I think things through from a coaching perspective, it, it's really in those two channels that I really hang out for most of my time. So, um, <clears throat> so I've spent a lot of time studying anatomy and physiology and biomechanics and you know, all the movements skill stuff uh, and i've also spent a, a, a you know a, a good portion of my time trying to just work through you know what does true development look like so how do you take an athlete and and move them down some sort of developmental pathway so uh, it took me a while to get there i, I, I you know from the time i stopped playing i, I was uh, you know I, I was really had had some good coaching uh, my my technical skills were good my golf iq was high when i started as a coach so it wasn't like i was starting from a bad spot um, and I had a chance to really go just chase things down and pursue things that were just, you know, my curiosity basically kind of drug me around for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, in the early, in the early days when I was first getting, getting started, there wasn't really much, uh, tangible sports science that you could really hang a hat on. So I was really trying to, trying to pursue some of those things. So I was trying to understand golf and my sport, maybe from a, you know, from a little more of a scientific and more objective perspective, because at that point in time, there's very, very little objectivity in our sport. So, uh, so I spent the about the better part of 10 years or so just trying to turn over rocks to help myself upskill myself in objectivity. So, you know, trying to understand the geometry of what was happening and the physics and the biomechanics and the neurosciences and anatomy and physiology and, the, and, the, and some hard sciences that would actually, uh, they were tangible that I could actually, you know, start measuring things and, and quantifying things and and, uh, and that was <clears throat> back in those days, it was nobody was doing any of that. So it was just, uh, and it was just because I was <clears throat> out of a frustration of as a player, it only made sense that you got to, I've got to try something, you know, I've, I've done enough of this, <clears throat> this subject of coaching and been around enough subjectivity. I needed to, 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 to develop some more, some more objective uh, tools. Um, and it's funny, kind of, you kind of go full circle. And once you kind of gain a certain level of object, objectivity, you realize that there's a, a fair amount of subjectivity so there's you know the intuition and, and you know instincts and other things that you have to you know kind of the people skills that you have to develop to be able to be a good coach so it's uh you know I, I, 
I fancy myself as kind of a Kaizen guy. I'm just kind of you know, continually improving and, and uh, trying to kind of make myself a little bit better each day. And, and I've been blessed to, to be around some incredible um, other, other coaches, service providers, athletes, and uh, all of them have been great teachers to me. So, uh, you know, <clears throat> as I sit here, I'm probably behind you, probably the luckiest guy on the planet. <laughs> um, right. Now, listen, I don't thank you for that. It's quite in depth. And I think, you know, the first thing to kind of sort of talk about there, you know, you talked there about paying attention to the, you know, the biomechanics and the movements. And, and you know, now, really, in some ways, would you agree that you said these are quite technical aspects of the sport? Um, yeah, absolutely. Very much in the way that you work, you, you kind of, as much as your attention is on that, you know, you, you're, a lot of your work personally is much more around the, the psyche of everything, yep. how, how, you know, how players, you know, how certain things do have an impact in, in, in those respects. More specifically, a lot of your focus is on how to help the, your athletes in particular develop their decision-making ability. Um, yeah. Where, where, did, where did that curiosity or that, uh, that line of, you know, thinking for you come from, to, to, you know, that you wanted to explore a little bit more of that because that, that's <coughs> not all coaches certainly uh, would consider themselves a necessary developmental coach, but that is a large part of being a developmental coach and allowing, allowing for a space where players or athletes can help themselves in developing their decision-making aspects. Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the things that I, I got off into after, a, uh, <clears throat> after a, a certain period of time of gaining some tools I really started focusing on, okay, how to drive performance. Okay. How do you take an athlete and actually help them get <clears throat> perform well? So there's one thing to teach them skills. There's one things to train them up and get them physically ready to, to compete. But ultimately where the rubber meets the road in sport is performance. And so, so we start kind of looking at performance as a, <clears throat> as a, as a, as an art, you know, or some sort of, some sort of craft. And I think that the best performers in the world, there is performance talent, I believe. And so, so what are the things that drive that? And so I started, I come into it from this object, this place of objectivity where I was exploring things and trying to understand um, things a little bit more scientifically. And one of the things that really helped me a lot was I, I started, I ran into a statistician out of uh, Australia, his name is Stuart Leon. And Stuart uh, has a company called Shots to Hole. And he had been acquiring information about the way people play the game and uh so uh i i asked him to help me out with a couple of players and we we took a kind of a deep deep dive off into some of the some of their their performance data <clears throat> and uh and nope there had been very few people that i think had taken it on at that point in time and i found out some things that i that i i didn't know for example i didn't really know what good was right so if you don't know what good is you know performance wise then you can you can drive yourself crazy or you can not hold yourself accountable. Those are your two choices. You know, it's hard to get it just right. Mm -hmm. And so uh, once I kind of got a chance to, to get my head around what exactly what good was, I could actually start helping people make better decisions, right? Okay, so if, 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 if you've got to hit for a tour player, for example, a tour player has to be able to hit the golf ball in the fairway off the tee about 70% of the time, right? And they, from the fairway, they've got to knock it on the green about 70% of the time. Uh, if they miss a green, they, they've got to be able to chip the ball in two shots into the hole and getting to get the golf ball up and down into in, in, in about 70% of the time. And they have to take about 29 putts. And so those are the hard numbers that, that golf gives us. The variance in golf at that for the players at that level is about 5% of the distance. So what's good? Anywhere inside 5% of the distance would be a good shot. So at 100 yards, that would be five yards right and left. 
uh, 200 yards, 10 yards right and left. And you can take that to meters or, or whatever measurement tool that you want. <clears throat> but that's the basic scale, right? So if I, <clears throat> if I know that, that's the, that a, pl a player has to go kind of play at that level, first thing we can do is we can train to that level. We can help them identify, okay, either you're already good enough and we don't need to worry too much about it. Or in, in spite of the fact that you think you're great at this, you still need to get better, right? And so, and once you kind of can help ident identify those benchmarks, you can help people make decisions, right? So, and this 70% number keeps coming up. It's, it's an interesting number for me because uh, if you if you poll the tour players, the really good ones, and you ask them about, you know, if they're getting ready to take on a shot out of the off the tee or out, out of the fairway towards some sort of target, you still you, you get into discussion about two things. Okay, is it possible, first off, right? And the second thing, is it probable, right? So if you start looking from a probability possibility perspective, these players are so gifted that they're willing to take on things that are frightening. I mean, they're just very, very difficult. I mean, they're, and so, <clears throat> so they'll take on a shot that's, that's you know, on a, on a probability scale is maybe one or two or three out of 10, just because sure. the possibility exists, right? Sure. So once you kind of get to where you can understand the difference between possibility and probability, you can, you can help decision-making. All right. So for example, uh, <clears throat> so the tour players, the best ones I've ever been around, the, the general rule that they use is if, I, if I'm getting ready to take this sh shot from, from where I'm standing to that target, <clears throat> I've got to get myself to a place where I can, I feel like if with the club I've chosen, the shot that I've chosen, it, you know, I've got to be able to kind of get it up around seven out of 10 before, before, I, before I make it up, make a decision on it. So they, they, they make their decisions a little bit conservative so that they can swing aggressively. All right. So the seven out of 10 rule on the tour is the basic rule that I've been around with the really good players. So they'll start with saying, okay, if I took 10 shots in this location, I've got to feel confident that I can get the ball into play seven out of 10 times before I will go ahead and execute that shot. Sure. You know, I just wanted a couple of things that just pop in through my head as you're talking through there. Now, first of all, is that 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 assessment process. Now, you know, I, I can certainly in the sport that I mean, you know, working in football, obviously soccer, as you guys know, um, a lot more variables, I think, would be thrown into the equation because it's obviously it's a contact sport and you've got an opposition, a live opposition. So, so I'm curious to know, you know, in, in, the, in the sport of golf um, and I guess when it comes to working with an individual that's in some ways unopposed, um, how do you create those realistic uh, pressures that they would have to put themselves through to maybe real make, make a real fair assessment of whether something is possible and or probable? Yeah, I think it's really, you know, if you give them that 70% rule, the thing, the reason I like that seven out of 10 idea, and, and, to, and just to back up one step, in a, most of the other sports, the environment's so dynamic that you don't have that opportunity, you know, to, to sit there and, and be and make it, actually make a decision. A lot of times it's, you know, you've, you have to train yourself to be able to see things and move and react to kind of what's happening in the environment. And golf is, <clears throat> while the environment is, does impact the, the way the players, you know, see and think, it, it, the ball is stationary and then you really have a lot more op options in terms of, of having some an actual strategy about what's going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. So so we start kind of looking at, at, at being able to, to to, to try to take that on the, the reason I like that seven out of 10 rule, because it allows the player to be able to end on a day when maybe they're not feeling great, 
seven out of ten might look different than on a day when they when they really feel like they're on top of their on top of their form, right? So they let's say that they've hit a, some poor tee shots and they stand up on a tee and they're kind of looking out there and they're thinking, gosh, you know, seven out of ten today, not a, not going to be a driver, maybe a three wood or a five wood or some other club, right? So give it gives the player the the opportunity to adapt based on the, the moment and how the the emotional confidence and the confidence that they that they're bringing into that moment. So so the and you know the one of the things that happens with a golfer is the coach is not there with them. They have to be able to do this by themselves. So you have to skill them up on on how to think and how to work through these moments and and uh, you know it's uh, every now and then somebody will, you know as long as they've got a strategy on on how to how to do that. Most of them are pretty well and taken on. Brilliant. You know, yeah, you said some of the things again. <clears throat> I think as coaches, we always we constantly challenge to look at ourselves and thinking, right, what are the values and what are the the ideas that we're trying to push onto the athletes or the you know the people that we work with. And for me, one of those things is I'm very much about that tactical side, you know, that psychological side, making decisions. You know, how 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 in tuned are we to what we're doing? And um, you know. I, People, you know, whenever I get asked the question of what type of coach you are, I often refer to myself as a coach of a why. Mm-hmm. Um, I, love that. I, I want the I want the athlete to really understand the why behind what they're doing. I, I, I've gone away from where maybe in my early years I was much more about this is what I want to see, this is how I want it done. Um, it's much more actually, here's where I want you to get to. Let's work together to see the most efficient way of you as an individual getting there. Um, and that might look different to the person over here and the person over there, uh, which is absolutely fine with me. However, what we will do is we'll start to ask ourselves some questions about the process we're following so that we can get to a more efficient way of working. So I'm curious, you know, on that front, what are the types of questions that either, you know, firstly, maybe that you start asking of your athletes and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but then in... I guess, in support of that, what are the types of questions that you athletes to start asking themselves? Yeah, so I, I think that, you know, ultimately, I think my goal with the athletes that I would get involved with is ultimately get them to a place of self-reliance where my, my role over time should change. So on the front end, it may, it may be a lot more helping them develop skills and, and strategies and so on and so forth. And over time, they become more self-reliant where they can kind of take those things on, take some ownership of those things. And I mean, my role should change. And ultimately, my job is to coach myself out of a job at some point, I think. And that would be the ideal situation, you know. So um, as far as tactics go and, and pure periodization, tactics has, has to do with kind of planning, goal setting and strategy. So it's a it's a fairly you know wide lane, but there are very, very specific things in, in, in that lane that need to be taken care of. So strategies on how to compete how to train, how to recover. All well, those are all things that, you, that we have to upskill these players on, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of goal setting, uh, you know, intentions, intention drives the truck. It really, if, if you can't, if a, clay, a p- player cannot get themselves clear on their intention, they're going to waffle. And just, it's just the way it is. And, and most people, the, the, the big people that I've seen that have really hit high marks in golf are very, very intentional. So they're, they're very goal-driven. They, they know exactly what they're doing. Uh, they start with a very specific destination in mind. So, you know, that idea of intention and goal setting as it relates to the tactics, I think is super important. And, uh, and then, the, you know, how do you organize the, the, the training to be able to support that? You know, you, how do you periodize that through the different phases of the year from off season, preseason, in season injuries? Uh, you know, so it's, that's really becomes kind of the, 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 as you get further along and once the technical things are developed and the physicality is developed, right. And 
then you see you move off more into to the to this mental to the you know tra training mental strategies and also this this idea of tactics which is is you know is takes care of a, a lot of it and, and and a lot of my work with the with the, particularly with the players that are that are that i coach that are on the pga tour now is a lot of that i mean all of our technical projects that you know those are underway it's not like we have to go and reinvent the wheel there every day it's a we know what we're doing technically each player has their own blueprint um you know mentally that we've got things in place they've got they've got their gym programs in place so the you know the further you get down this road it becomes a lot more about these this tactical training uh and the and the role that i provide it becomes more, much more tactical by tactical by, by nature Definitely, and I think you know, just in the, you know, there, then obviously, you know, the, the, I guess a model that we use in my sport is, you know, is the idea of the four corners. You've got the technical, tactical element, which is the one area, and you've got the psychological, you've got the social, and then you've obviously got the the physical aspects. Now, if if there is a model in your sport, and if, you know, is is there one? Uh, there's, you know, the sport doesn't have one. I think each coach would probably have their yeah. own their own model. I mean, I. I follow, I've been following Isfan Bali's work for a long, long time. He's kind of become a good friend of mine. And so I, I like the simplicity of the, of just, you know, the, the physical, uh, I mean, the, the technical, physical, mental, and the mental picks up the social in my mind. Yeah, yeah, and then, uh, and then you also, and then the, the final part is the tactics. And so I periodize around those four things. Um, uh, the, you know, the, the, the mental part of it can, can also, you know, uh, it's just really super important to get right and making sure that they have the right culture. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's interesting. One of the things that, that I've kind of gotten off into and, and become very interested in is this idea of, of culture in sport. So in team sport, it's pretty easy to set the culture. The, the head coach decides, okay, this is, these are the values that we're going to focus on and that we're going to, you know, pay attention to. And, but in individual sport, there's, you know, you don't have teammates. And mm. so, so part of it is making sure that each player has a, has time to kind of sit down and actually work through developing their culture, their warrior culture. How are you going to be when it when it comes time to go, or to compete or when it matters most? Mm. And so I've spent a, quite a bit of time in the past four or five years making sure that I get that done early, making sure that they understand what their their own personal culture is, and then everybody that kind of joins their team becomes you know read into to, to the to the values. For example, we're going to be fearless, focused, calm, decisive. Uh, you know, whatever those, whatever those elements are and make sure that everybody on board that gets onboarded understands, okay, when, when you step into this space with this athlete, this is who we are. Right. So. And just to kind of on that, you, know, you talked there uh, about the, the, the subtle difference or the major differences rather uh, between obviously golfing and individual sport and, you know, the other, the other sports that, you know, generally team sports. And I'm interested in obviously from the perspective of a coach is working largely with individuals. Mm. How often do you, I guess, put those two, put more than one individual together and have them training on a, you know, side by side? And more specifically, I, I, I'm really keen to know what some of the, I guess, strategies are around how you work with an individual. Because now, what's becoming more and more prominent, certainly in my sport, is the idea of pulling players out or athletes out and um, creating individual development programs for them, supporting them as individuals and yeah, I'd be keen to know a little bit more about what what you're talking about there in the sense of setting a personal culture. Obviously, you're right, largely, you know, where the head coach is, is present, they will be setting that, you know, that overall team environment culture. But I think it's a very important aspect in terms of, yes, we've got the overall arching team culture, but still within that, we've got so many subtle differences or maybe differences between the individuals within it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to find out 
what are some of the strategies that you would consider applying um, in devising or identifying what that culture should look like? Well, I think that we start with the idea that when you, you know, the, the best sporting culture in the world, arguably, would be the New Zealand All Blacks. If you look at their record over time, uh, you know, wins versus the amount of matches played, uh, they're, 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 in, they're in their own league, right? And if you, if you take a little kind of a deep dive off into kind of how they roll, they don't really focus on, you know, there's never any, any decision about, okay, at the end of the game, we're going to have the most valuable player. There's not going to be a most valuable player at the end of the week or the year. They say we simply sit down at the end of practice or at the end of a game or the season, and we identify people that on, on the team that actually um, embodied some of the values that we have. So, for example, we say, okay, you know, we, uh, today I want to I want to acknowledge Yasser for for his his selflessness, and this is in this moment we all saw it. That that's exactly what it what it looks like. Thank you for your contribution to our to our team. All right, so so all of a sudden this thing becomes so much bigger than you know somebody trying to win the game ball or or have the you know have the you know take the last shot on goal and win win the game or or hold a putt. You know, so so in, in team sports that's it's you know you can you can actually build that up right. And, uh, and so it, so culture basically is, okay, you know, how are we going to, how do we do things when it matters most? Mm-hmm. Right? This is the way we do things and how are we going to do it when it matters most? If you can answer those two questions, you can build culture. Mm-hmm. I learned that from Jerry Lynch, who I think is one of the brightest guys on the planet. I love Jerry. And he's, he's helped me. He was a guy that helped me learn how to take it from team sport into an individual sport because I had no idea. I, I mm. you know, my, my theme and the, the idea of having culture even on my radar as a coach was, was not even on, you know, I, I, it, was, it was probably I innately understood it, but I had no idea cognitively how to, how to try to approach it mm. and try to help coach people through it. So, so he basically helped teach me how to do it. And I when took a couple of players that I was working with. I started with myself and my own personal culture and kind of worked on it to kind of get a feel for it. I took a couple of players on and, and had some success with it. And so I, I believe, I began to believe that, okay, this is, this has something, this moves the needle. This helps, this helps players. And so we start with the idea that we're going to have a warrior culture because when you go to compete, you know, you, when you're home, you need to be a, a compassionate, you know, warm, big hearted human being. But when you go to compete, you, you're, you're off to war. And so you know, the best warriors and what, what does warrior culture mean? Well, it means that, you, you know, you have to you just have to step in. You have to bring certain attributes or certain qualities to your to your craft, to your training, to your preparation, to your competition. And so it's just the, the matter of actually sitting the athletes down, presenting this as a concept and helping them define their own culture. Let them define it and just take them to an exercise and say, OK, what are, what are the qualities that you think you need to bring to these moments? Right. And let them construct their own culture. And so, because at that point in time, it, it resonates with their spirit. It's not going to be something that I've artificially, you know, developed and then try to superimpose on somebody. I think each person has to find that in their spirit in terms of, okay, this is, this is resonates with me because when, when it comes push to shove and you're out there by yourself, you know, in one of those big moments, there's, you, there, you've got to be able to lean on yourself. You've got to get you got to know that you, that, you know, I've got, I'm wired up for this. I've, I've done the preparation. I'm ready to go. Mm. No, definitely. I, think, I totally agree with that. I think you, you know, you have to have that shift of, that the shift in mindset that of competition. Now I'm, you know, I want to now bring it back to obviously the idea of the decision-making aspect of things. Right. How much of that is then drawn out of that mindset and how do you then bridge the gap to get help you help these players shift their mindset to a point of actually we need to start being a bit uh, 
you know, in some ways have a bit more of a growth mindset here and really start to assess things on a, on a wider scale than not be told tunnel visioned on the what, but more about the why and the when. Yeah, I think, you know, you start kind of, uh, I'll just give you a little story about, you know, how, how this kind of plays out. So we're talking about decision-making. So um, in the 2000s, right after the 2016 Olympics, I was coaching a, a Russian woman by the name of Maria Virchinova. Maria was a, uh, she played, she was from Russia. She was playing on the, the a Lays European tour. And she was probably one of the biggest underachievers I've ever seen. I mean, technically she was so good. I mean, she was almost staggering to watch. I mean, she, all of her skills look great, but her performance has never really kind of matched up to that. So it was always this question, you know, why couldn't Maria, you know, get herself organized? And so we started working together and, and uh, this is about the time I'd met Jerry Lynch and he had, he had been taking me through some things. And so anyway, I got started with Maria and helped her with her technical game and she got better and started playing, having some nice results in Europe and decided she wanted to come to the States and, and uh, start playing here on the, on the women's tour here. So uh, this is all in the run-up to the 2016 Olympics, right? So, so she was in and out of training. She would go back and play in Europe. She would play a few events here. And about eight or nine weeks before the Olympics, she rolls into my office and she goes, uh, I can tell by the look on her face that something's not right. I mean, and she's normally kind of cheerful and bubbly. So I close the door, I sit down and said, hey, what's going on? You seem like you're, you know, you're, you know, you're upset about something. She goes, she goes, Kevin, she goes, I've got these Olympics coming up and I'm, I'm just scared to death. I'm like, scared to death i mean it's the olympics i mean you know it's the first time people play golf in the olympics in 100 years it's gonna be a blast Are you kidding me she goes yeah yeah but you don't understand i said well enlighten me please tell me what's going on so she says well you know in russia the you know i've, I've had a lot of friends from other sports that have that have gone to the olympics and they've gone to and competed and done well and they come back and there's all sorts of of opportunities for them i mean there's there's, you know, there's business opportunities that pop up and all these different things that happen and all, you know, it's just an unbelievably uh, incredible thing to kind of watch somebody go through that. She goes, I've also seen people go to the Olympics and fail and come back to Russia and it's, it's not good. She goes, and it's not good for the person, for their family opportunities. And she goes, I'm just concerned that I'm going to go to, to, uh, to Rio and I'm going to, I'm going to struggle. And then he's saying, and I just, I don't, I can't, I can't afford to do that. She goes, I almost think I'll, you know, I want to just not go. I said, no, you got to go. So I said, well, what if we could kind of, you know, I said, well, let's sit down and kind of build you a warrior culture so that when you show up, that you're going to bring your best, that you're going to be ready and be prepared. So I said, you know, I said, so I said, you're going to compete. You're going to be a warrior. You're not going to go in there and, and, you know, get run over. All right. So everybody at the Olympics that does well, complete warrior. Right. I said, so, so what, what qualities do you want to kind of bring to, 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 do you need to bring to the, to, to the table down there to, to, to have a good. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouthwatering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. 
Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I got Olympics. And she says, well, I got to be decisive. I, I, she goes, I get, I get in those moments and I just, I just, you know, I, I, I just get to where I can't make a decision. And I said, okay, all right. So we need to figure out, you know, making sure we have a strategy for that. And I said, what else? She goes, I need to fear, be fearless. I cannot be afraid of this. I said, yeah, I agree with that. So she goes, I need to be uh, um, present. She goes, I get way ahead or way behind myself. I said, okay, what else? She goes, I need to be calm. All right. So, so, and uh, I think there was one other one. I can't remember exactly what it was. So anyway, we, 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 we decided, okay, this is, these are the qualities that we have to, we have to be mindful of. We have to train. You have to be ready so that when that moment comes and you've got to put the ball on the ground, you've got to hit it and get after it at the Olympics, you're bringing all the right qualities to that moment. So we, we, had, her, we had her put together a, a, just a card with, a, with those words on it. Um, we had a, had her come up with a, a picture of herself that they reminded her of a warrior. She was in, she had a picture of herself standing by her golf bag that she'd been professionally shot and she's standing there with her glasses on and looked complete warrior. It was a great photograph. So she had, she had this card on one side was a photograph of her being, the, you know, the, with the warrior pose and the other side were these words, right? So, uh, so every day when she got here, I said, okay, this is how this works. When you get here to, to practice. And when you get to the golf course, any place in the world, when that trunk slams, you're the warrior. That's it. Game on. Mm-hmm. I said, I said, if you ever, if, you, if the warrior, if you ever turn around and the warrior's not there, you take your hat off, you put it back on, and you're the warrior. You can pull it, pull it together that quick. Mm-hmm. So we, so we got her involved, her caddy involved. Everybody was, you know, we got this warrior culture thing kind of going together. So, so what we had, we talked in terms of her decision making about using the seventy percent rule that I was telling you about. We talked to her about having some, some, some ideas in preparation to be able to kind of figure out, you know, how to, how to tactically move the golf ball around the golf course strategically and, and how, how they could prepare and get that done. So they, they had two projects when they left here, this, this course management thing to, to, to be able to understand the course and the 70% rule. Those are the two things. And I said, as far as your decisiveness goes, it's, it's sticking to your guns on your game plan. And the second part is going to be being able to kind of be adaptive and use that 70% rule as you move from moment to moment. All right, so that, those were the decision-making strategies that we that we set in place to be decisive. You just do that; that makes you decisive. Okay. So anyway, she goes down to Rio and she's hanging around even par, which is puts her in about the middle of the pack after for three days. In the last round of the, of the Olympics, she shoots sixty-two. Now sixty-two is ten under par. It's uh, and, she, and it was the lowest score that was shot by either a male or a female at the Olympics. So now, and she barely misses a medal. I think she finishes fourth or fifth. And so now she leaves the Olympics as being the world record holder for score in the Olympics, right? And she's had this incredible experience. So she flies back to flies back to Europe, and uh, I, I don't see her for a couple of weeks and give her a couple, you know. So I, I said, well, I'm, I'm going to give her a call and see what she's doing. So I call her. I don't hear back from her. About a week later, I finally get. She finally calls back. I said, hey, Maria, what's going on? She goes, oh yeah. She goes, it's been going great. I was. Just you know, just trying to recover from the Olympics. It's been such a kind of whirlwind for me, and you know, just came back and all sorts of really cool things. And I said, "Well, well, that's great." I said, "When, when am I going to see you again?" She goes, "Well, I was, was going to call you about that." I said, "I said, what's that?" She goes, uh, "I think I'm going to retire." I'm like, "You can do what?" She goes, "I'm going to, I'm going to, I think I'm going to retire." I said, "You're going to, you need, to, you know, why, why, why on earth you would you retire? You just, you just got your golf game ramped back up, and you're, you know, you just, you know, shot, you know, shot 62 at the Olympics and." And uh, she goes, remember that story I told you about the, you know, the good and bad of the Olympics in Russia for me? She goes, I came back and I've been there. I'm sitting here on my desk looking at about $500,000 worth of contracts. And for me right now, 
I can't not take that. I've got, I, you know, I, it's, it, it's, it would cost me money to play golf based on, on these opportunities that have been presented to me business-wise. Mm. So, so, you know, the, the cool thing about that story is, you know, here's a girl that was a woman that was getting ready to go to the Olympics, scared to death, technically could handle it, but her, but her headspace was not great. Right. Sit down. We talk about developing the culture. You know, one of them was decision-making, gave her two strategies and said, okay, this is it. Then it'd be complicated. You just have to do this, be decisive. You use your 70% rule and you stick to your game plan. Got it. Okay. I got, I can do that. Okay. So I, I think, you know, what, and, and so she goes, does, you know, takes this, this culture into this big, massive moment for her and it changes her life, you know? And so I do think that the strategies that we use for decision-making need to be practical. I think they need to be uh, uh, things that people can do simply and it can't be too big. And the reason I say that is because any, if you, if you pile complex decision-making uh, strategies on top of people and they're trying to operate in a complicated environment, the weight of all that becomes too much. So the, the, the strategies have to be simple and they have to be only one or two. You can't give them a long laundry list of saying, I want this, you know, to be decisive or, you know, make great decisions. I need to do seven or eight things. So. I, I, I feel you on that one. I think the question I would throw back at you then is um, if they're always having a limited amount of decisions to make, uh, are we then potentially limiting this? the potential amount of outcomes there could be well i, I think it's it's, hope, it's hopefully just to keep keep them on keep them on track right mm. so it's, it's it has to do mostly with should we come back on here so sorry about that so so i i think that uh um i i think that part of our job as coaches is not to worry too much about all the possible outcomes but try to kind of get something that somebody can use practically in the competitive environment, right? Yeah, I mean, there's going to be every now and then this black swan, like a, like a coronavirus is going to come along that you're not going to see, right? It's going to come out of, out of a funny spot and you're going to be blindfolded and, and, and you're just going to, it's going to, you're going to get run over. It happens a lot, but, but as coaches, we know the majority of the, of the, of the situations can be handled by a couple of these basic things. Mm. At the end of a, at the end of a competition, you talked about kind of the, the backside of that kind of the debriefing, you know, you all, we always ask three questions. Okay. What did I do? Well, what needs work and what's the plan, right? That's, that's the only three questions we ask ever, you know, as it relates to kind of in that, in that, in that debriefing after, after an event or after a season or, or some sort of completion. Right. So if, if, if the strategies that we've been using are, are effective, right. And I, then the athlete can say did well, my decision-making was good. Okay. If they said it wasn't well, okay, well, tell me about that. What's what's happening? So we can talk about that, refine it, fine tune it, and then and then in the next cycle we can we can try to try to do that differently or better or whatever whatever it requires. So I do think it's you know having a having a debriefing process that allows you to say okay you know how how does the athlete perceive you know that the, the way they handle it? How does the coach perceive the way they handle it? Come to an agreement that okay yeah we think it was okay or we think it was not okay or we we need to have a discussion about it. So it's you know, did well. Okay. If it did well, then no drama. Right. If it, okay. If it didn't do well, okay. Then it needs work. Right. If it needs work, then what's the plan. And so having that debriefing on the backside of that will should help you fine tune anything that, that's required that, that allows it, that might be adaptive for a certain, you know, uh, so allows it to be adaptive and can, they can you know, the, this, the, some of these strategies can kind of move and they can, 
they can grow and, and kind of move along as, as, as needed to, you know, based on the challenges that the athletes are, are, are encountering. No, definitely. I think, you know, that process there, but I'm curious, you know, that's that debriefing process. How, how, uh, how important is it that it's not just post activity, but also during activity? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's if the, I think it, it has to be, a, you know, it's, it's interesting when we start kind of looking at progress, you know, we, we always think about progress as being some sort of kind of linear, mm. you know, some sort of linear line. And the truth of the matter is it's, it's like, it's like this, you know, it's never a straight line. Right. And the second thing is, is that, that my thought about it is it's, it's like, it's like you're rolling a wheel. Yeah. Right? And, and the wheel is the process. <laughs> the wheel is a process. And, and, and so you stay in the process. It's a little circular process. Right. And you're rolling along and you just want the general pitch of this slope, not only one given day, but generally to kind of be ticking upward. Right. And so if you, if you, if you have good benchmarks and metrics about about performance and you have the right technical things in place and the right physicality in place and the right mental strategies in place, and you're asking the right questions, you should be able to, you know, uh, moving somebody up that slope is something you do. Now it's not easy. It takes a lot of work to stay in that process. I mean, everybody wants to have some sort of process you can automate. Well, there's no automation. You just gotta, you've got to just be with it. You've got to be with them. You've got to be with the athlete. You got to, you got to be present. You got to, you know, use your instincts, use your brain. You got to use your metrics, got to use your, all your tools. Right. And, uh, and it's, it's never the same set of tools in the two athletes, although the process is almost identical. So. Mm, mm. And I'm obviously on, on that, on that journey, then how important is it for you then that it's something, it's something you touched on earlier, you want your athletes to become self-reliant, uh, almost, you know, I think the phrase you use is you want to coach yourself out of a job essentially. Now, I've got a fairly similar view in you know, the way I in the way I work, and you know I like to think of it more as uh, I want to coach my athletes to be. You know, initially, I used to think it was uh, to become independent, but actually, in, independent suggests that whilst I guess they have maybe essentially the confidence and the you know the bravery to go ahead and make decisions themselves, they may be limited to only their way of thinking. Um, so I, I like to think of it more of a, a path to interdependence, um, yeah. where they can kind of, like you know, uh, technically and tactically, they, they you know they are competent and, and they're, they're inept in making decisions. However, so socially, they you know they still feel confident and you know are willing to, I guess, look elsewhere for the answers too. Sure. You know, for me, a large part of that process is challenge the place to look at everything they're doing, whether that be you know, the way they prepare, the way they actually perform an action or and looking at the finer details. So I'm quite fixated now on the finer details of everything, you know, from the, the, the mechanics, the motions, and um, really, you know, we hear we hear these stories all the time about maybe great athletes don't always become great coaches. Um, and, you know, and my theory is how it's probably down to how much they're in tune with what they're actually doing. We hear this word, the instincts right. brought around all the time and say, you know, this athlete was amazing. And, how instinctive they were but you know instincts just suggest it's just a reaction it's not mm -hmm. there's no like thought process going right. um what are your thoughts on that in terms of it and I, is, is that something that you kind of you look to kind of instill within your athletes in terms of getting to become more in tune or, or attuned with what they're actually doing and actually paying attention to how they feel um and what are some of the ways in which you go about doing that if that is the case 
I think that, you know, I, I loved your word interdependence. And I think that's probably probably what we, what we actually kind of look for. The, the difference between maybe, you know, football and, and uh, where it actually, the, the players are actually a member of a team mm-hmm. and golf is that um, in a team, they're under contract and you can fire them. Right. In golf, I'm the one who gets fired. Okay. Right. So, so I have to be thinking about really trying to empower this athlete and give them what they need. And if, with the with the full understanding that if once they've learned everything that they're going to learn from me, it's okay for them to go on and, and seek other things, right? So I've been part of their discovery, a part of their process, mm-hmm. and so it's a little bit different. The athletes that we coach aren't under ownership or they're not under contract. Uh, you know, they can. So so my job is to is to is to try to spend enough time to I actually un- truly understand the athlete, help them, you know, develop a pathway that lets them go where they're trying to go right mm-hmm. and sometimes the athletes aren't, aren't clear on where they're trying to go so part of that is you know might be calling them out and saying hey listen i i hear what you're saying you want to be on the tour but you need to think this out a little bit deeper okay you need to be you need to be 20th in the world 50th in the world 100th in the world because each one of those levels is going to be a different discussion right so again to your point once you once you can kind of figure out the destination where, where we're trying to kind of get to you can you can mash out the details and you can you can get into some some pretty you know you can you can really chunk it down to some some very you know small things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the smallness of all that is really good for for coaches to understand. Uh, I think that the thing that that we want to try to be careful with with our athletes is not to try to over overload them uh, and try to kind of create um, you know try to help them increase their IQ in their sport, uh, increase their competence mm-hmm. and their belief in themselves. And uh, try to simplify it down so that when they step in the environment to go out and compete, mm. uh, they can focus more on the environment and less on kind of all the all the things that float around their head. Definitely, one of the things that you know you touched on there right at the start of that is that yes, golf is an individual sport. You know, uh, the sport that I'm in football is one where you are part of a team and you can be let go of. And I guess one of the things that kind of popped in my head as you were talking is, do you face challenges in the sense of now, I'm trying to draw a comparison here in that we might have a player on our team, as an example, that might play in a certain position, but we might feel they're better suited to something else. Yeah. Um, I guess the comparison in your sport might be the way in which they're performing at this point in time. A, a particular technique might be more efficient if they, or, or, or the way, or this, their playing style. They might be, they might be less aggressive in some ways, and you might want to shift that to something different. Do you, do you find resistance at that sort of thing at times? And, you know, cause I'm, I'm coming back to what you said about where they want to go with it. Right. They, they, so, they've, got, they've got a vision, they've got an idea. They want to go this direction and they want to do it in this way because that's what they feel is uh, best for them. But in some cases that what they feel could be a more of a want rather than a need. Yeah. I think that you start kind of looking at trying to help steer athletes along. I mean, it starts with, you know, it starts with the, just having a clear intention of where they, where they want to go. The great thing that we have in golf is that once we can kind of figure out, get them to get committed to, okay, let's say I want to be 10th in the world, right? Once they say that, we can benchmark it. Mm. I, can, I've, I can figure out exactly what that means in terms of shots, their shots off the tee box, their approach shots, their shots around the green, and how many shots on the green it's going to be required to take. Mm. And then we can actually measure those benchmarks versus their performance data. And we can say, okay, you know, you want to be this guy, right? You're in this area, you're pretty good, but you got, you need to get this much better over here. Mm-hmm. Right. So we can actually use data 
to help them understand. And then once the data's on the table, it's like, okay, you know, you just told me you want to be this top 10 guy. Okay. So I don't want to hear that. You don't like about what the data says. I don't want to hear what you, you know, that you don't want to, tr- if you, if you want to do this, we'll get, we've got to buckle down. We've got to f- get training and we've got to figure out how to close these gaps down. Right. And so, so I do use data that way to, 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 to bridge this, this, this delta between, you know, where they, where they are and where they want to be. Right. And, and most of the coaching, and I think you would probably agree with this is, is, is just trying to, it's awareness training It's trying to help them become aware of the things they need to become aware of, right. To, 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 to achieve whatever they want to achieve. Hmm. Most of them have the, have desire. They got, most of them have the tools by the time that we get our hands on them. Um, and so, you know, if you've got desire and tools, then the only thing that you need is you need to, you know, to have, be, have, be aware of the right things to be able to focus your attention on to get to where you want to go. And if you can do that consistently over time, you'll arrive. Definitely. And just on that, then, you know, I'm curious, you know, so one of the things I do is, uh, you know, as part of my role is um, I also work in coach education. So I deliver coaching courses. And, uh, you know, the questions I always try to write is trying to really, you know, provoke thought and curiosity within the people on the course. And certainly in the sport of football, I've seen that over the last few years, particularly because of the shift, and I refer to the model area about the four corners um, and looking at those things, the model seems to have shifted a lot more around a uh, blended approach, which I think is fantastic. However, I think it does leave room for people to maybe shy slightly away from what the sport is really about, and that's that technical and tactical stuff. Um, Now... I'm not sure if you face similar challenges in your sport in particular, but I'm curious to know then, you know, we're really talking about trying to align athletes' vision or trying to align their attention to what they're actually doing, how how it's being done and the process within that. So would it be fair to say, you know, certainly for your sport, I know I definitely feel this is the case in mind, that if you're not really, if you don't really have a true underpinning of some of that technical stuff and more technical than tactical, then, you're not you're really well equipped enough to actually then shift their attention to those things. And That's things correct. Yeah. Focusing on. Um, so I mean, I guess the question really is: is what are some of the processes that you go through? I guess as a coach to ensure that you're on the right lines in the terms of the technical aspects. Yeah. So I mean, I've golf is by nature a very technical sport i mean it's way up there in terms of the complex you know to complex motor skills and so um so i mean and and a lot of the the study and a lot of the information that gets flow you know that gets thrown around in our business is is thrown and directed towards that and there's i mean with one of the things that's happened in the past probably 15 or 20 years is we've suddenly been inundated with technology i mean we've got launch monitors and force plates and, you know, stuff that people have been using in other, other sports. We, we, you know, we didn't see any of that stuff until, you know, 20 years ago. I mean, the first time I saw a video camera and, you know, got seen by a swing was probably about 20 years ago. So, uh, so I think that, you know, we're tech. And so what that does is everybody initially falls in love with the technology, right? They're so excited about the new technology and it becomes so objective that people, they, they, the coaches actually fall in love with the objectivity. At the end of the day, what, what you want is a, is a coach that's competent, mm. somebody that can actually help you, right? Somebody can knows how to move the needle. And so as it relates to, to, to competence as a coach, you have to, in my world, you have to, you know, I, I focus on making sure that I, I, can, 
I can help people technically. All right. I, I've got a strong enough background in all the, all the disciplines that we require the, you know, the anatomy and physiology, the, the, the biomechanics, the, the, you know, the movement, you know, the, the skill, the skill acquisition stuff. I've got to have all that because that's part of what I'm doing. And to your point, if you're asking somebody to kind of go out and compete in, a, in a, an environment and they don't have the skill in, no mental strategies or tactical strategies are going to help them. Okay. I mean, they're just not good enough. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so part of it is being able to, to assess that and say, okay, as I'm looking at this, I've got a clear enough eye and understanding of this to say, okay, this should be good enough. Okay. It, mm -hmm. And if it's not good enough, then we can start kind of pursuing that next set of questions. Mm -hmm. the, the, the way I, the way I love to do that is to not, I mean, there's a lot of ways people do it, but I, I, I've got my favorite way to do it is to, is to give once the, once we can get an idea of what the intention is and what the benchmarks are, and we, we determine that everybody knows what it is. I, I'd like to set a set of tasks up for the, for the athlete to go take on. Mm. And I watch and here's it. So, because this, if you're going to accomplish this task, it has to be done at this level to, mm. to translate into what you're wanting to do on the golf course. So I, I give them a set of tasks and I watch them. Right. And I say, okay, here, here's the task. Okay, we're going to make you, we're going to hit 20 putts inside of 12 feet, and you've got to make 12 of them. Here we go. Have a go. I'll set the putts up, you hold them, and we'll count them. Right. And so I let them have a go. And if they scored, you know, 13 or 14, then okay, you've clearly proved to, proven to me that you're good enough. Right. Um, if they, if they have, if, you know, if the, if the, if the, if the you know, and I, I, I want to kind of really drill in into this point where my question really came from as well is that um, I come across so many co coaches, not just in football, just in general, different sports who are uh, who I consider to be more facilitators or even comments. Yeah. You know, they're very much, I want you to do this, I want you to do that, but they don't quite understand that if mm -hmm. an athlete or a player isn't able to perform the action, but right. that's actual, even if not to say achieve the outcome, shall we say, and complete yeah. that task, because of their, in some case, lack of understanding of the architectural aspect of it, and not to say that it has to be done in one particular way, but a way, a baseline or a structure or, to, or, or a platform to work from, that they can never then really navigate to themselves or, uh, on that process as to where they need to kind of step in, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and, and I think you're exactly right. I mean, ultimately, is, is the, the question we ask is, what we really look for as coaching is, is, is the athlete competent? Can they comp can they compete in the environment and, and perform at the levels required for them to be successful? Right. So, so if we're focusing on competence, then the two, there's two ways we can, we can assess comp competence. One is through the performance data. Okay. How do they perform under the pump? Right. Mm -hmm. If they're performing well under the pump and their technique is, is not great, then they've, they've still proven to me that they're okay. I mean, Jim Furyk is, is a guy in golf who's, who's technically would, you would look at and you go, you know, I can't, you can't, can't believe the guy's even, even on tour. He was one of the best players in his era because he was competent. Right. And, and if you're an, an unskilled coach, the danger is see somebody like that walks in their office. Who's already competent mm -hmm. and just tries to make a whole bunch of changes that aren't necessary. And they, and they, and they ruin athletes. Right. So you, I think the first thing you have to do is test for competence. Is the athlete competent? Right? If they're going to, if they're competent, they're not going to hurt themselves then my job is to try to learn and understand how they do that and try to support that. Right. Mm -hmm. If they can't do it for some reason, then that's when I lean in. Okay. And I, and I can, I can lean in a lot of different ways. It could be through equipment, through technology, through technique, through uh, nutrition, through a, a million different ways you can lean in to try to help. Right. 
And if I'm developing somebody, then I've got my own ideas and I will steer people. And I've got, if I've got a young kid, a 12 year old kid that's walked in my office that wants to kind of get on this long-term developmental pathway, then I'll develop based on the principles that I think are probably going to give them the best chance to succeed, you know? So it's, you know, it's, it's a little bit different with each, with each level of athlete, but I, to your point, I love what you were saying. And that is that, that, that you have to, you have to be, you know, when you're trying to kind of make that decision, you have to be really careful, particularly with, with, with world-class athletes, because you could ruin them. You can do more harm than good, you know, mm-hmm. if you're not careful. 100%. You know, I'm just interested now, obviously, as we start to wind down, you know, just coming back to the idea of that decision-making, how to help athletes improve their decision-making. If you could just take us through some of your how-to steps and what you'd consider as, uh, you know, an important part of that strategy and process. Yeah, I think ultimately it starts with with helping educate them, you know, helping them become more, increase, increase their IQ about what it is that they're actually dealing with, right? So a lot of teams, people, you know, people make bad decisions out of one or two reasons, either arrogance or ignorance. There's, there's nothing, there's no other reason people that make poor decisions, right? So it's either, I, you know, I understand that I understand the risk reward, and I, but I'm going to be bullheaded. I'm going to take it on anyway. And I fail. Okay. Well, that's on you. Right. And then, but if it's ignorance, they just don't know, then, then we are, our job is to help fill in the gaps, right? So the, the athletes that are acting in an arrogant manner, we need to help them say, listen, I hear what you're saying. I know how good you are, but you know something that's, that that's going to, that's a zero sum game for you. It's not going to, you know, you need to rethink this. Okay. Let's sit down and talk about it. I'll tell you, I'll tell you where I, where I want you to kind of take it on. I'm not saying you do it every time. If, if you know, if, if one out of every 20 times you still want to kind of take that thing on and, and take that arrogant approach, I'm happy with that. But your wellness and your well-being going forward and your survival in this sport is not going to be okay unless you can get a, your head around this. Right? Mm-hmm. And then if I've got somebody who's ignorant, that's just, it's not, ignorance not being a bad word. It just means that they don't have the, the knowledge or the understanding or the awareness to be able to understand what it is they're trying to decide on, right? So, so it's, it's really trying to figure out which side of, of the spectrum the athletes are coming from and try to help them either rein them back and help, you know, help them say, okay, or fill in the gaps. And so it's always that, you know, I, it's, it's funny. I, I always start my, my um, assessment with an athlete with a fresh piece of paper because I don't want to have to think that I've got some sort of formula that I'm going to stuff them into. So I want to find out about what their processes are, you know, their, you know, their decision-making processes and, and, and try to understand, do those align with their, with their intention, you know, and does, is their attention on their intention that, that allows that, that to kind of to fuel the, uh, the work that's required for them to be able to get to where they want to go. So it's, it's, I think you're always dealing with a population of one. And I think in team sports, it's even more important because I think it would be very easy to, to try to stuff everybody in a box, but you're actually dealing with, you know, all these different kids with, with, they're all different. So you have to, each one of them has to have to some extent their own program. And, 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 it, and that requires a coach like you or me to sit down with and get to know them and, and try to find out what they, what they do well, what they don't do well, where those gaps are that we can fill in. Brilliant. Well, look, Kevin, it's been a really, um, it's been a pleasure for me to have this conversation this evening. Uh, you know, I've, I've certainly taken a lot from it myself and, you know, just further clarified some of the thoughts I've had in, in, my, in my head over the way I work and you know, in, in, the, in the environments I work in. Um, so I just want to thank you again for your time. I'm sure the listeners have found it as enjoyable as I have. Um, mm. Just on the final note, you know, if there is any listeners or viewers out there that, um, you know, would like to get in touch with you, maybe discuss some of the things that we've touched on in this conversation or beyond, is there some way they can do that? Yeah, they can find me on LinkedIn. I've got a, a site there, and I've also got a, a um, probably a, uh, I've also got an Instagram account. It's Kevin Kirk Golf, uh, so you can hit me up there if you if you want to have another another way. And uh, those are probably the simplest way to do it. And 
uh, instead of trying to have to kind of go through the old fashioned way of trying to track me down on the phone or, you know, emails or whatever. So uh, those are probably the two simplest way to do it. And, uh, um, and just before we stop, I really want to kind of thank you for inviting me on to your, to your show. I, I, uh, I love talking to coaches. Okay. And, and I, I really even more enjoy talking to coaches from other sports, because I think that, I think the growth for all of us is in the cross pollination where we have a chance to kind of get coaches from other areas to kind of to where we compare notes and talk about things. Mm-hmm. Cause I always, the, the, all the big growth that I've had in my sport, the people in my sport, we all know the same thing. Mm-hmm. So it's always that opportunity to talk to somebody from the outside, outside my sport or outside my domain where I can cross pollinate a little bit that I pick up the ideas that help me grow. So I want to thank you for your time today. You've impacted my life in a really positive manner. And so I want to thank you for that. My pleasure was mine. Um, again, look, thank you again, Kevin. It's been a wonderful discussion. I wish you all the, all the joys and success in your career now. And you know, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you too as well. All right, mate, you too. All you guys be safe over there and I'm sure we'll be in touch soon. Definitely take care, Kevin. Well, there you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favourite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at The Coaches Network or on Twitter at The Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.